you know, you've got to be able to mm. do that commercial aspect of things. You, you've got to be able to commercialize what you're designing. And I do think it's fair that for craft-based disciplines, that is a historical challenge. I think we're at a little bit of a point with service design in particular that because we are in this transition where in-house is growing significantly faster than agency. Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organizations to become more human-centered in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centered service designer and innovation coach based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now in this conversation, or in this episode should I say, I speak with Dee Seaver or Diane Seaver from Philips about the role of the service design function within organizations and the interconnectedness towards how academia prepares designers towards either agency or in-house practice. Look, it may seem like a small nuance to some people listening, but it's a really interesting conversation and it should allow us to pause and reflect and think about how we're training designers for the future. It's a really good episode and I know you're going to enjoy it. And also thank you, while I think of it, to everyone who has been leaving so many wonderful reviews for the podcast. I recently checked and saw lots of reviews trickling in from across the internet and Spotify and Google and so forth. Now, if you like what we do, just leave a review wherever you're listening. It helps me out, helps others find the podcast too. But anyway, let's jump straight into this episode. Dee, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, A little tired from some business travel, but you know, that's, that's the job. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, You are uh, in Omaha, is that correct? That is correct. I know I remember making jokes about Counting Crows the last time, but I won't do it again. Um, But maybe let's start off. um, Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Sure. Uh, So I am a designer for about the last 15 years, so have... um, My undergrad degree in industrial design was a practicing spatial designer for a number of years, went back and got my master's in design management and service design, um, and have been doing that now for about eight years. And seven of those years has been working with uh, Philips Health Technology or Royal Philips, depending on um, if you're European-based. And with them, I've been primarily supporting business model innovation. So as a longstanding product manufacturing company, how do they tap into servitization and subscription economy and start to bring some of their offerings to be services often driven by, you know, that business model aspect. Wow. Yeah. Now, I remember we actually connected off the back of another episode that we did um we're okay to talk about this one i presume like with uh ricardo martins from um scad so savannah university and the college of art and design and you you qualified as a service designer way back in the uh, 1970s only joking in 2000 2014 I think it was was that right in my notes yeah um I used to at the time my my small claim to fame was I was the fourth service design graduate in the United States because SCAD was the only full-time program and I was the fourth graduate from 
that program. Wow. So you didn't get a medal. No, I didn't. I wasn't. And and the irony is at one point, um, all four of us were actually living in Chicago, Illinois, because there was a pretty decent um, service design community there. So it wasn't, I couldn't even say that like I was the only one in in the city. So definitely didn't didn't get a medal. Maybe got an honorable mention on that. I thought you were all going to say you were living in the same house, like a fraternity or something. No. No, I I deeply respect my my classmates, and you, when you're a program that small, you also need to go find your separate ways. Mm. <laughs> well, when we were chatting, um, myself and Ricardo had a really good conversation around the the kind of model from academia into uh, industry and what that looks like, and we were back and forth um, on LinkedIn. I think it might have been about um, some of the some of the challenges that you faced from within industry and seeing these people come out of academia into industry what were the 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 things the patterns that you were seeing um, from within industry on the failings of academia um, over the last couple of years yeah there were there were two pieces that really showed up to me um, and mm. and the, I think the first one was, there's a huge emphasis in academic programs around service innovation, and I think really tends toward the um, service research side mm. of things. And in most cases, particularly in-house, it's not really needing innovation, it's needing to execute. And so lots of times there's more than enough ideas, there's more than enough identified opportunities. Yeah. And, and you know, especially companies that have been doing it for a while, they may not always get it right, but they generally know what they need to do. And so having a lot of um, service designers come in really struggling with, well, I want to come up with the really cool ideas and I want to do the innovative things and I want to better understand customers. And in most cases, it was, well, we actually need to launch a service. How do we do that? And then how do we look at existing services and really evaluate the opportunities to continuously improve on those? So, yeah. So are you saying that the people coming out of any university um, are unable to help with those things or are they just stronger in certain areas and they're weaker in other areas? Is that what you're saying? Well, so I think it's more of a mentality. So, so it's what I often find that I need to help with is a mentality shift of, mm. uh, especially coming in, um, fresh, you know, you need industry experience. That's just the reality of things. And so the industry experience is, kind of the grind of executing on services. You know, you're needing to write work instructions. Um, you're needing to facilitate meetings across different types of um, organizational groups. And it's not glamorous. It's not the innovation work, but it's the sort of real work. And so what I tend to find is really helping those early career service designers help mm. make the connection of like, this is also service design work. It isn't the high fidelity, the compelling stories that you're often taught um, or, and often 
I would almost say like encouraged to challenge organizations around. Um, so I think it's really more of a, of a mentality that takes work. So I don't think it's the wrong skills. Often I'm able to kind of redirect yeah. those skills, but really the mentality that comes with that is, is the yeah. like organizations have no idea what they're doing and it's up for, and it's up to this magical service designer to somehow, um, you know, course correct this entire organization because they've been doing it all wrong. Yeah. That's the mentality that I tend to struggle with. That's been taught and encouraged in a lot of the academic programs. It's, it's interesting because is, do you think it's generational or is it to do with the fostering of this mentality within um, academia? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I feel that it is the fostered mentality because um, mm -hmm. I, I see this even coming from grad students that have had professional experience. Um, and if I look at um, even what is the, what is published by the academics, um, yeah. it really is in this, how organizations are wrong, you know, not how our organizations doing things today and perhaps critiquing those, but there is there tends to be kind of a fundamental what gets highlighted even by academic presenters, thought leaders, is really in this state of, um, you know, in-house is broken or, you know, all services are broken and doesn't really get into the complexities mm. that go with that. Um, and so it's really easy to critique and suggest that you can somehow fix things and solve world hunger when you don't mm. really have to experience what that grind looks like. Do you think a part of this is um, the organ organizational molding, if you want? You've worked within Philips, which are mm -hmm. massive. Okay, I'm, you're based in the US, they're based in Europe, and there's yep. a certain cultural understanding and cultural acceptance on how to operate. Um, do you think there's part of the bias might be coming from um, being organizational mature, organizational ready? Um, is that where the disconnect possibly may lay? I'm just trying to play on the fence here and defend yeah, for, for sure. relational design out of university. For sure. I think um, I, I think there is some legitimacy to that. I don't think it's Phillips specifically, but... No, just any, any organization. Of, yeah. And, I mean, and so this is where, you, you know, yes, like, while service design is continuing to mature as an industry and, you know, professionally, it has really kind of been around, you know, the, mm. it's really been agency driven. And so yeah. as, you know, we look at what agencies needed to succeed and what kind of skills, you know, I think academics really responded well to that. And then in-house is a far less mature set, um, yeah. section of the profession. And so I think part of what's fair is maybe academics haven't caught up to the challenges that doing in-house service design faces. And, um, yeah. and I do think, you know, if I look at, so when I started at Phillips in 2016, we had five service designers titled, you know, which was at in 2016, having titled in-house service designers was pretty big. 
But now we have um, over 45 titled service designers. We have about 85 in kind of our crack service design practitioners. And so some of the challenges that we face in that five with that five versus now are a little bit different. And and I think that is some of the organizational challenge that's going to always come with in-house, that's always going to come with building up a practice. You know, any UXer 15 years ago would have said the same thing. And so it could be that that's something that is inherent to in-house and and we need to do a little bit of that bridge the divide to what are the shifts in academics that we need to address. So for anyone listening, um, the differences and the nuances that we're talking about there is if you go into an agency and you see mirror images of your skills amongst your your teammates, um, that is less challenging um, to be accepted, I guess, versus going into an organization where you're like, you do UX, do I X or do you X or do I X? <laughs> All of these different things are said to you um, when you're walking around the halls going on. I think they're a designer, but they've got UX or service in front of them. Do they work on Amazon? Are they designing the service architecture? All of these things get you, you have to do an, an awful lot more selling and an awful a lot more describing and um, explaining and being a little bit more um, sensitive to the organizational development, I guess. Is that fair to say? It, it is. And this is, um, you know, so one of the other things that we had, we were talking about in some of our conversations is, is to me, this is where my idea of distributed service design comes in. So one of the mm. distinct differences is that an agency is hired for a scope of work. It, you know, it's a set contract to deliver on X number of things. In, yeah. in in-house, there is no set timeline, right? You are really in the, I need to help the organization achieve its goals. And I am one of the cogs of many that does that. So service design in-house isn't owned by a single entity. It's not owned by design. It's not owned by customer support. It's not owned by service marketing. You know, there's no one part of an in-house organization that owns designing and delivering services. So as an in-house service designer, yes, there is some selling, but even like with Philips, where we are now of having a relatively mature service design practice, we have to Hmm. always work with counterparts. We are always going to be working with IT operations. We are always going to be working with our um, product and engineering. We are always going to be working with our marketing and sales teams, as well as like our field delivery teams. So part of what happens is, is you just, you can't kind of in blissful isolation work on a service. I would say agencies can't either or shouldn't maybe is the better thing. But when you Mm. can walk away at the end of something you know, those, how am I building my collegiate relationships? How am I helping our different parts of the organization to consistently work with each other? That's a different objective than I need to deliver these 
for outputs and artifacts in the next three months. Yeah, and I guess the argument is that academia kind of creates one dimension to the designer's um, kind of future if you want they they kind of just they just work to design versus working to design for agency or working to do it to design in-house um well and one of the things yeah and one of the things that i really benefited from when i was doing my grad work is that i also did design management and so design management Mm. being how are you facilitating creative problem solving within an organization And so there were a lot of things that I brought from that around organizational dynamics. How are you really, you know, really upskilling my facilitation skills, Um, thinking about extracting people's natural creative ability, getting really strong at problem framing. Those were all things that weren't necessarily, they were maybe touched Mm. on in the service design aspect of things because they're the focus really being what is a service? How does a service work? Um, Unless I would say on the organizational aspects that are fundamental to being an in-house service designer. And, you know, that's that's tough. There there is trade-offs. No, I was going to say to you there was, is this a new problem? Or is this a problem that's been age old and been around since design has been elevated into organizations? Um, I I don't know. It, you know, it's a it's a good it's a fair question because if I think about early in my career when I was doing um, spatial design, one of the things I really benefited from was having the direct link to our fabricators. And so I built a really strong vocabulary of, well, how do my designs actually get built? And sharing a mm. vocabulary with them to be able to say, you know, here's, here's my picture that I've rendered. And they'd look at something and say, that's not possible. And so then I would say, okay, well, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. How could we maybe yeah. do that in a way that makes sense? Um, and those were some, I, I had a really good design engineer that helped kind of role model that aspect. And so I do think it, it shows up a little bit in craft-based disciplines where you are then going into, um, you know, the, the artist isn't enough. You know, you've got to be able to do that commercial aspect of things. You, you've got to be able to commercialize what you're designing and and I do think it's fair that for craft based disciplines, that yeah. is that is a historical challenge. I think with I think we're at a little bit of a point with service design in particular that because we are in this transition where in house is growing significantly faster than agency, yeah. that we, or maybe it's that I'm feeling this with a lot of our recent hires, there's a little bit of that gap because we don't have as much role modeling in the profession or in our, in our academics. So it could be, you know, if we have this conversation five years from now, it's not the level of pain that I see and experience now. And it's, and, and, and I think part of, Part of what I feel confident in around, you know, it's not just Phillips, it's not just me, is 
I have yeah. also mentored and coached a lot of non-Philips service designers that are struggling, or I've had mm. um, folks that have come from agency and have years of practice, and then I'm helping to adjust their approach now that they're in-house. Um, and I've even seen, you know, I've gotten into um, slightly spicy LinkedIn debates about in-house success. Spicy. Spicy. Yeah. A little spicy uh, um, debates. And and so I think it is, you know, it is a, it is something that the profession is particularly wrestling with right now. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of three different questions. <clears throat> the, the spicy one, it might be a little bit too hot. Uh, the, um, so you're saying the, the, first of all, we'll take it step back to the academic lens. Yeah. Okay, so there's there's definitely people from um, universities listening to this podcast. I know because I've spoken to a few of them in the last week. Um, where are they going wrong? Um, yeah, I this is this is always my perpetual challenge. Is if I'm going to complain about something, what am I gonna yeah. what am I gonna help to do different? Um, I, so I think some of it is. And this is a perpetual challenge in academia is who are the practitioners that are educating? So many of the practitioners or many of the academics have academic experience, you know, through the university programs, they've done service design or as individual consultants that they've done service design. So what they're teaching students is based off of a particular practice experience. I would yeah. really like to see more in-house service designers doing coursework. Um, and that is something that I'm taking on a little bit myself. External coursework. What was that? External coursework. Uh, no, no, no to, to teach courses in the academic programs and, and to have the okay. academic yeah. programs do a little bit more to say, how can we bring in practicing professionals? Um, I think there's a huge opportunity there and it's something that I've offered up to various different programs and don't necessarily get taken up on that. So that's one thing where I can say, you know, I think there's opportunity there. Um, I think the other thing too is I think there is in thinking about the topics I support the topics that are often focused on. I think they could shift from describing how companies do it wrong or, or how people outside of the industry do it wrong. And what are the ways that you really support the human aspects in those topics? Because ultimately we're working with humans to deliver services. And so yeah. I could, you know, just like we talk about in like contextual research or design research, understanding the user, I think there is a missing link to how are, you know, your clients in agency a user? How are your colleagues in other parts of the organization's users? And taking some of our tools that are sort of traditionally taught and how do we apply them to other scopes? to other conversations. And so I think you could still keep kind of the, the traditional coursework, but hmm. apply it from a different perspective. Lens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 
more industry involvement with different um perspectives either yeah. agency versus in-house okay is one way of achieving that um and in terms of the students who have say um already already graduated and they're on the lookout for jobs you know there's lots of people out there at the moment and they're like what happens if i'm one of them <laughs> do you do you saying that i'm i'm potentially like i don't have this skill how do they go and do this because this is the the, the big quandary for a lot of graduates and emerging yeah. talent they want the skills they want the experience well, and, and, then, and then they face someone like you who kind of goes, well, I know if I take you on, you're not going to have this experience. What do you say to them? Uh, so, so to be clear, I actually don't expect recent graduates to have that experience as we were talking okay. about, you know, like, like a mindset, right? For me, it's, yeah. I feel like I'm often needing to coach and mentor overcoming a mindset, um, and, and, and kind of an approach to things. So I don't feel like they fundamentally yeah. lack the skills. And in fact, I'm a huge proponent of, I really expect, um, this, this is going to sound wrong. I expect very little of new graduates. I expect that they are going to have the theoretical basis to then yeah. apply in practice. And I see it really as my job as a senior and as a lead designer to support them in that practical application, you know, applied theory mm. kind of thing. Um, what I think, so, so what I would then encourage new designers is to really think about how are they telling their portfolio stories from a perspective of this is the way that I applied certain tools. Here's how I learned from that. And based off of that, here's the adjustments that I made. Because then I can hear, okay, they've got the right parts and pieces mm -hmm. and I can shape and mold that. Then I think there's a very practical that once you're in a role, really finding that expert navigator that can help you to build that, um, that organizational knowledge that supports how you succeed in your role. So I think mm. it's a really, it's really a shift from I'm going to come in and tell people what to do to, I have a lot that I need to learn and I need to find the right people to learn from. Yeah. The attributes of a service designer are something that I've discussed in uh, episodes that probably haven't been released maybe by the time that they listen to this episode. But in your belief, if you go and study a master's of service design, does that automatically mean, and this is a, a, a pretty poorly phrased question, folks, <laughs> does that automatically mean that you're going to be a good service designer? And I, I'm, I'm going to... Um, yeah. I'm going to answer that one for you. Most likely, you know, it's, it's, it's no. Okay. Right. right, right, right. So what are those attributes? Because I'm really keen to hear the human side of things. Yeah. It's much like you could go to a hospital and you have Dr. A and Dr. B. One person might be, have a really beautiful bedside manner and that it affects the quality of the service. 
So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on what are the attributes of a quality service designer and are they being nurtured enough from within academia? So I'm going to struggle a little bit with this answer because, and and I actually recently just had this development conversation with a a colleague. Hmm. I what makes a quality service designer is going to be specific to it's 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 a little person and a little person dependent in the sense of are you trying to be a lead service designer are you mm. trying to be an experienced lead you know that has a multidisciplinary team or are you really trying to be that individual contributor and you know, and I think in some ways not so different from other disciplines, you know, there are UX designers that are fantastic pixel pushers, right? Really superb coming up with brilliant concepts aren't necessarily the people most effective at stakeholder feedback and um, looking at how do things fit into the strategic objectives. You know, they given a well-framed problem, they can execute against it fantastic um, or may even be able to do that framing, but maybe can't do both. And and so I think depending on what your role needs to be or what you want to be, um, part of what I was just talking with this designer about is being an excellent workshop producer, but she's not necessarily the person who's really going to lead the energy of a workshop. And so yeah. we we were talking about those are two different skill sets. And both of us have a place. Like I, I'm a great MC. You know, I do fantastic um workshop MCing, right? You know, feel the dynamics, keep the energy up, adjust when needed. But she is an excellent producer who can really yeah. like line everything up, make sure everybody's set up for success. And, and those are just different needs and both of yeah. them can exist. But that being said, so that's, that's my caveat to all of that. But yeah. that being said, um, there's a couple of real people side to things, um, the bedside manner aspect. So one is I often talk about needing to be a multilinguist. So I speak yeah. finance, I speak marketing, I speak um, engineering, I speak IT. I'm not, uh, what is that? You know, I'm conversationally fluent in it, but I sh- sure can't write it. I'm not proficient in it, <laughs> you know? Um, but because I can listen to what folks are saying and understand that and also talk with them in their own language, it makes things hugely approachable. And, and this is where I love kind of the bedside analogy of, are you using the scientific technical descriptions of whatever health issue you have, mm. or are you really talking in layman's terms in a way that a patient can understand? So yeah. I think that that multilinguistic piece is huge. Um, I think the other thing that is really powerful and I see some of our best service designers able to do is they're fantastic at rapid conversation synthesis and reflection. So they're really able to um, 
actually, I, Adam Lawrence, I point to a lot around, uh, it's an improv skill. You know, you can hear what's going on and based off of what you're hearing, be able to react to that or be able to reflect back to the team. Um, so particularly in workshops, I, I hear this show up a lot or dicey, spicy conversations. They're also dicey sometimes. Being able to say as a multilinguist, hey, I hear you saying this. I hear you saying this. Together, we're saying this. Do we all agree on that together? Mm -hmm. And then it's often like, oh, yeah, we really are saying the same thing, but we were all coming at it from our own perspectives. And so that that kind of um, improv skill of rapid synthesis and then reflecting back makes a huge difference in getting the alignment that you often need and being able to have people working towards the same direction. Okay. So there's there's quite a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> but again, just just going back to the 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 emerging talent, yeah, who, who might have studied service design and they're hearing this, they're kind of going, okay, well, do I have these skills? And I, I'm going to give my perspective on things, and I'd like to hear if you. Your, your thoughts on that like for, for me service design and effective service designers there's no one type okay so there's you know it's we we need as a craft we can't be producing the same type of skill set and the same type of person we need all those different variances and different backgrounds and perspectives and strengths to really create a stronger um, potential outcome for the people that are going to use these products or services um, but one of the things that I find within, um, service designers that seems to be that uh, they're good people in terms, like they're able to communicate and they're able to balance objectives. Uh, and they're also, which, which you mentioned there about being able to synthesize conversations quite quickly, see patterns and, and move between all of these different levels of complexity that we talk about, talk about quite a lot. Um, do you believe that there is a role service designer? Because in my perspective over the years, I call myself a service designer, but like if you bring me in and they're going to go, well, we've got the service designer, the service designer is here. It opens up a potential of um, confusion within in-house teams um, and tends to be like the way I position the role as a service designer within in-house conversations is I'm just like a facilitator, a facilitator of the conversations between all of the stakeholders who are here. You've already been delivering a service for the previous 50 years in some some cases. So my role here is just to try and ensure we get a better outcome. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, both. Uh, so yes, I do believe there is a service design role. I I would be able to say over the last seven years, I've had a very clear role as mm -hmm. a service designer. What I also agree with is that designing services is not a role. And, and that is the distinction that I make. Yeah. So there are lots of people that design services. 
Um, there are lots of people that define and deliver services. And that I very much believe is a distributed and shared activity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, just like, so like, but, but I also say, I say the same thing about like, I'm a trained creative problem solver. You know, that's what being a designer to me really means. Like if I do generically, regardless of the type. But I'm, I know amazing problem solvers in engineering, in finance, in marketing. So a lot of, so for me, it's really what is the application of that creative problem solving? And so my role as a service designer is deep creative expertise in crafting service experiences. And that is absolutely something that, yes, I'm facilitating, but I'm also delivering on. You know, there are distinct deliverables that I have created that would not be created by a non-designer. Um, I would say in the same way of like UX, you know, there there are a lot of user experience oriented people, you can certainly as a non-designer create experience flows. You can, you know, you can define navigation and architecture, doing it to a level of fidelity and with tangible craft is where you start to see that shift. Um, And, you know, in fairness, like there are a lot of UXers that I work with. There's a lot of design strategists, design researchers that take a service design approach in their work. And I think bring um, tremendous service design perspectives, but I really don't see them executing on designing services. And so, you know, that's a little bit where the two intersect is that in my role, as a service designer designing services, I do feel that I have a unique responsibility for certain deliverables, artifacts, outputs, results. Um, But I completely agree that designing and delivering services is not a role. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because there's, there's, it depends is probably the, the, the <laughs> kind of response to it. Like, you know, there, we can keep going and keep going and we're both of us are in a hole in this one, but like, it's, it's really, um, it's interesting to speak to you about this because too often it's just glazed over. Like, you know, you're going to do a service design uh, master's or degree yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. And then you find yourself working in a business and you're scratching your head saying, why isn't this making sense? Well, why? and there are, hmm. There are groups that I've worked with where I've been very transparent to say, you don't need me. You all are doing fine. Like you are designing and delivering exceptional experiences. Like I don't have anything to contribute. Um, and, And that I'm totally good with that. Like there are some brilliant service marketing folks that can elegantly describe and reflect customer journeys, tie that front stage to backstage or thinking about different touch points and Mm -hmm. are able to creatively direct the craft side of things. You know, they're not necessarily executing, but they're able to do that. And so that's sort of where I'm like, no, you know, go work 
go work with your outsourced agency or go work with your one person that's doing your UX. You're like, totally, like you guys have this. Then yeah. there are other groups where there is a distinct craft deficit and there is a distinct um, sort of gap in tangible articulation of experiences. And then that is a huge contribution that, yeah. that I can make. And, and again, you know, even in some of the exceptional groups, then it can be more, it can end up more as a facilitation role of like, mm. you have all of the ideas. My job is to extract those and reflect them back to you. So then you can do something with them. So, you know, for me, I'm really living in, or, or I'm comfortable with a spectrum of when is it designing services and when is it being a service designer? Yeah. And kind of where do I need to exist on that spectrum at any given time? It's interesting. It, it really is like, you know, I've I've had this thought over, I don't know, the last decade or so that certain people are probably better equipped to handle certain working conditions. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> okay. And I, that's what I'm I'm kind of hearing. I'm, I'm actually, you know, doing what we talked about synthesizing a conversation quite quickly yeah. and when we come up like that's that's what um, i'm doing here but it's like i i took a role at a consultancy a few years ago and i'm like wow well, this is probably not the home for me straight away uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm from government and running my own business and and working within agencies and stuff and i could see why certain people thrive in certain environments whereas others sink for sure um, and I think that's really important. And I guess I'm kind of, I'm summing up our conversation, but it's important for academia almost to put them into different lanes and say, this, this is what experience looks like within a consultancy. This is what experience looks like within the house. This is what an experience looks like running your own business. This is what, and, and having a flavor for all of them because they require different sets of skills. Um, well, and maybe it's more, so, so this, this is interesting because I'm thinking about like, especially, so I do a ton of portfolio coaching and mentoring. And so like, what, is, you know, thinking about this, like, what is the pattern? Often the pattern of my interactions with current students is helping them identify those factors that they have already experienced, helping them identify mm -hmm. from their academic work where are they likely to be successful? What are their particular skill sets and strengths? And so, you know, I think about, so, th so this is, if I were to maybe really get tactical for academia, what they could change, I would actually like to see, there's almost always like one quarter or one semester of make your portfolio. I would like to see those be far less generic of, you need to put together three projects with this many pages yeah. that describe, you know, because by the way, I can spot what program somebody came from based off of their portfolio. I like without fail, I can say which program they came from. Um, I would like to see those professional practice classes or those portfolio classes be much more oriented towards how do you self-identify your starting point? And, mm -hmm. and knowing that your starting point may change, you know, like you may start an agency and then realize like, nope, really not for you. 
but knowing mm-hmm. that like there are some amazing things about agency. You get huge variety of projects, you know, it's really kind of this fast turnover cycle. You're going to be exposed to um a lot of different interactions. But what are the trade-offs with that? You know, the trade-offs being you're not really going to have the long-term relationships. You're not going to be driving organizational change. Um, You may, you know, and so so knowing that there's sort of different things there, and then even within that, what kinds of projects do you like to do? Are you really more oriented towards fuzzy front end, or are you more oriented to continuous improvement? You know, there, there are very different desires even within that. Um, you know, are you more oriented to you really like to do the design research side of things and reflect that in a service yeah. experience? Or are you more of a you are you more oriented to discrete touch points and want to link them together in an overtime journey? Those I think those are the really tactical conversations to have in academia so that both students coming out are able to tell the story that they want to, you know, they're, they're able to present in the way that, that reflects who they are as a designer and then seek the kind of opportunities that they, they think are going to best align with that, or at least know that if they aren't getting that, then how do they potentially navigate that misalignment and still seek it as a learning experience? Um, absolutely. It's, um, I, I can't really build on any more than that. That's, that's re- really solid advice for anyone listening who's finding themselves post, uh, academia and in that position of, of looking for a job and also for people within academia and how they can take that advice and maybe consider applying it to any of the academic structures that they find themselves designing. D we're at the end of the episode here. Um, you're at Phillips, um i'm sure people will have questions for you um maybe throw a link and what's the best way for people to get in touch with you and continue the conversation sure so um i have a code name so you can find me on linkedin but you need to look for diane siever um and the thing that i ask is anybody's welcome to reach out to me but you need to contextualize you know so send me a message or send me an invite but you need to say where you're connecting to me from. Otherwise, I'm going to ignore it. So, you know, just drop in there like, hey, heard you on HCD, would love to connect. Then I'll at least have that point of reference for for that. Um, and, and I would also really encourage connect because you want to have a conversation, not just for connections. Uh, so drop me a note with a question and then you will get an active engagement from me you better follow those instructions folks <laughs> i try hey, to be useful you. i need to be useful to people and i can only be useful to people if i if i know what they're looking for d thanks so much for your time all right thank you it was a pleasure there you go folks i hope you enjoyed that episode and if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>